Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today, I'll be answering questions from readers with dilemmas about saving friends from bad relationships, that's a classic, saving Black people from racist attacks in sundown towns, and how to deal when your spouse cares about his dog more than he cares about your children. To help me answer these questions today, I'll be joined by Jamila Lemieux. She's a renowned cultural critic and writer with a focus on issues of race, gender, and sexuality. She is a leading millennial feminist thinker, social influencer, and game-changing media maverick. Currently, she pens a weekly advice column for Slate's Karen Feeding Parenting section. And of course, she's the co-host for our Mom and Dad Are Fighting podcast. If you aren't a Mom and Dad Are Fighting listener, I just want to help you get to know Jamila and what she'll bring to this episode by sharing a few things I know about her as someone who's followed and admired her work for over a decade. Number one. On a recent episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, she came out in favor of those little leashes you put toddlers on. I actually totally agree with this. Um, I, I don't know why they're so controversial. She said, quote, one of my friends was like, black people don't do this, Jamila. This is not us. We don't do this. And I'm like, well, guess what we do now? I'm starting something new. What I recall is that my child was safe and that's what matters. How could you argue with that? Number two. She's a longtime, committed, unapologetic advocate for Black women and girls. That's how she ended up being featured in Lifetime's docuseries Surviving R. Kelly after years and years of being way out ahead on a lot of people calling for accountability for his abuse. So that's just some evidence that she tends to be right before other people, so listen to her. Number three, she said in an interview years ago, I don't think of myself as an influencer or thought leader, but just someone with opinions who can turn a phrase. I have to disagree based on her impressive career, but also because she accomplished the feat of giving her daughter millennial taste in music, turning her into a super fan of New Edition as a four-year-old. You can find cute evidence of this on Instagram. And if that's not being an influencer, I don't know what is. Jamila and I will dive into your questions after a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Jamila Lemieux. Hey. Hey, girl. Hey. Thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Let's dive in with our first letter titled Anxious Confidant. Two of my friends are getting married soon, and I can't help but think they're going to end up miserable. I've known both of them for over a decade. And because of past history dating one of them, I feel like it wouldn't be taken well if I were to criticize their relationship. But I truly worry they're making a mistake. We're very close. I'm in the wedding party. And of course, I want my friends to be happy and to support them. So I don't know how to approach this or even if I should try to discuss it with them. They have been in couples therapy leading up to the wedding and don't seem to be working on solving their issues beyond a superficial level. One half of the couple complains to me often about the other, and they express a lot of stress and frustration with the way their household is run, where they're living, planning the wedding, in-laws, and even personal habits. And it upsets me they talk this way about their partner. It makes me uncomfortable and concerned for their future. But I'm worried that because one of them is my ex, anything I say will come off as jealous or petty. So I've been watching this play out for months, feeling helpless. I don't know if I should keep quiet and hope for the best or try to bring it up. 
or even if it's too late to do so, this close to the wedding. So you are absolutely 100% right that because you're an ex, it will come off as jealous and petty. Um, Jamila, have you ever in your personal life or even in media you've consumed become aware of someone deciding to break up with a partner because their friend was like, I'm a little concerned about this relationship? Never once. Not once, because it hasn't happened in history, in human history. It hasn't. And it's unfortunate, you know, because... Sometimes we should listen to that advice, you know, like things are not going well with our partner and we're trying to make it work. And one of our friends, you know, says, maybe you're not happy. Maybe this isn't the right relationship and their heart is in the right place. But that's just not how breakups are formed. The person in the relationship has to want to be done with it. So, I mean, I think you can continue to be there for your friend, hear them out, you know, and maybe ask questions that perhaps could guide mm. them toward getting to their own conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't this seem like a lot to be dealing with for somebody you're preparing to marry? Mm-hmm. You know, are you feeling good about the wedding? It seems like you've got a lot of concerns. Are you are you ready for this? Are you prepared? And perhaps you can send them on a journey where they do their own discovery. But in terms of actually raising the red flag and saying, I don't think this is a good idea, I don't think that they're going to receive that well. I completely agree. Um, I love the idea of asking questions. That didn't actually occur to me as a possibility. Um, And I hate the idea of raising the red flag. I've actually had like a six-month friend breakup over someone doing this to me in the past. And she was completely right. And actually, I raised concerns before her wedding and she got mad at me too. So like we all know that you can be right all day long. You can be 100% right. The red flags can be flying. But as a rule of like human nature, people do not break up with partners because their friends raise super good, super smart, super valid concerns. My general rule for this now is unless your friend is at risk of being abused or is being abused, um, you just have to keep your mouth shut. With the, the Jamila edition, you can ask gentle probing questions that sound non-judgmental that can hopefully get them to think about things. Um, To make you feel better about keeping your mouth shut, I would just add, if their couples therapist hasn't gotten through to them, you're, you know, you don't even have the qualifications. You're not going to either. No, I think that's a very good sign that they're not going to receive this coming from you. Uh, And if anyone could raise those red flags, it would be the couples therapist. So even though you say it seems like they're only addressing their issues on a superficial level, at least they're in therapy. You know, Mm -hmm. there's the possibility that somebody who's qualified might actually say to them, I don't think you all are ready for marriage. They might have heard these words already. They might have heard them already and again, tried to ignore them. Um, I kind of think one concern in the letter is the idea that the letter writer is going to be a bridesmaid. And just as someone who's been a bridesmaid a bunch of times, I want to assure you that being a bridesmaid is not about supporting the union at all. It doesn't matter. You're just there to support your friend and drink champagne with them and like celebrate who they are. Matter of fact, before we started recording, I was talking to our producer, Sierra, who's going to be a bridesmaid tomorrow. And I didn't ask her anything about the groom. I was just like, oh, who's your friend? How long have you guys known each other? That's so great. You must be so excited for her. The groom didn't even enter the picture when it came to bridesmaid duties. So don't feel like you're somehow like committing a fraud or being inauthentic by standing up there to support the union um, when you don't actually approve of it. 
It doesn't matter. You're just there to be a good friend. And she's friends with both of them, you know, which right. I think further complicates this. So if you have both their best interests in mind, all you can really do is support this decision that they're awfully committed to. Mm-hmm. And also keep an open mind to the fact that some people just actually like to be in relationships with a lot of conflict. I think that's just comfortable for some people. Um don't assume that everyone wants like a harmonious, really smooth, really easy marriage. Um, I think for some people, like the bickering and the going back and forth and the complaining is just like kind of part of it. Um, all that to say, it's their life to live. And if you want to continue to be part of it as a friend, um, find something else to talk about. Okay, here's our next question. It's called Blue Guy in a Red State. I live in an area that's popular with weekend tourists coming from neighboring states to enjoy my region's camping, canoeing, hiking, and nature. Unfortunately, the legacy of sundown towns still hangs over that part of the country, and more than one Black tourist has found that out the hard way. For example, some Black men have been beaten up for going into town after dark. Whenever I see a Black family at the gas station, I feel like I need to warn them about the danger they could be in. However, if I say, watch yourself, this is a sundown town, It sounds like I'm the aggressor. I'm not. Is there a way to broach this subject in a way that doesn't sound like I'm threatening them? So, say you're driving through Mississippi and you stop to pull over for gas and like an energy drink or whatever. A white guy comes up to you and says, hey, just so you know, this is sundown town. You're in danger here. I mean, is that an experience that you want to have? Would you appreciate that? Um, it's not an experience I would want to have, but I would appreciate the warning. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you have a very short amount of time to deliver a very well-worded warning, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't sound like the aggressor. Of course, I'm giving you the side eye for living there. Just know that. I want to get to that. I want to get to that. Okay. But, you know, if someone were to say, hey, you know, these aren't my values, this isn't how I operate, but there are people in this town that have issues with Black people, and there have been Black people that have been attacked, and I just wouldn't feel right seeing you and not warning you to just be really, really careful. You know, not everybody around here is as friendly as I am, Mm. and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, and I know you're probably looking at me crazy for telling you this, but I just had to say something. I would appreciate hearing that, and I would get the hell out immediately. That's a really, really good script. It's better than the one I wrote, but I'll go ahead and and read mine anyway. Hey, I'm so sorry to approach you like this. This is incredibly awkward. I may be overstepping. I just want to warn you, this can be a dangerous place. And um, people from out of town have been attacked downtown. I just want you to be vigilant in case you are going that way. Again, I'm really sorry for interrupting your evening. I hope you have a good rest of the night and a safe trip. So you see, I like tiptoed around the race issue there. Mm -hmm. And I think I did it because it can be like, not a microaggression, but a huge downer for someone to come up to you and like report racism, right? Mm -hmm. I just don't know if he's giving the people who stopped through this town enough credit. In my mind, they're already just getting gas because they have to get gas and getting in and out as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to avoid is a situation where they're like, just going about their business. They're already well aware of racism in the world, this country, and this town. And then this guy kind of like unloads on them. 
and they have to like emotionally reassure him that he's okay for doing it or thank him. And it just becomes like, it becomes like something that makes their day worse, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to balance that with like him legitimately protecting them from danger, which I'm not sure like how immediate or acute the situation is. But I like the idea of sandwiching the warning with like, like you did with a lot of kind of apologies and caveats um, and an acknowledgement of like how strange it is to be approached like this. But getting back to what you said about side-eyeing him for living there, yes. I think a better question to be asking than how do I warn individual Black families who I happen to see at the gas station about my town is what can I as a white person do to change this town and make it better? Um, If you're willing to put all this effort into like being the guy who speaks up to people who are just passing through, can you run for sheriff or mayor or school board or something? Can you organize an anti-racism group? Can you organize a group of people to like patrol the streets and like make sure people are safe? Um, Somehow I want this letter writer to be working on the white people as aggressively as he's working on the black people. I love that. I love the idea of uh, particularly some sort of patrol, you know, that Mm -hmm. roams the streets and prevents these things from happening. I think it's important that other white people in the community know that not everyone is okay with these things that are going on. And I would imagine that it's probably not the majority of people that are participating in the actual attacks, but the majority of people are complicit either because they're okay with it or it just doesn't affect their lives. And so they may shake their heads and say, that's too bad, but they're not willing Mm -hmm. to do anything about it. You do have to be willing to do something about it. And it's noble to want to warn people, but you know, it's powerful to try to do something and stop these attacks from happening. Right. And it might be something that makes your day-to-day life in the town uncomfortable, right? So I think if you're really committed to protecting Black people from these horrible experiences, you might have to do something that puts your comfort on the line too, you know, that makes you Mm -hmm. unwelcome in the town, that maybe even um, makes you vulnerable to some kind of dangerous situation. So I would just say, think more broadly. The instinct you have is wonderful. Like you're a good person. I want to give credit for that, but I would encourage you to, um, to do what's more challenging than these individual conversations and to focus on like making a systemic change, which means focusing on the white people who are being the bad guys here instead of the black people who, by the way, you're not even going to be able to encounter all of them unless you, you know, drive the streets all day. Try to figure out something that can make a little more of an impact. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show. And when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I love how easy it is to use. And as a person who can be really self-conscious about making mistakes, I love that I don't have to actually talk to a real human while I'm still working on my vocabulary and my accent. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel the science-based language-driven learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. 
Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations. They're delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash prudy. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash prudy, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash prudy. Rules and restrictions may apply. Adultish is back. And this season, we're talking about standing up and learning how to take a stand for issues on the minds of young people, like book bans. The book banning side. They have an incredibly well-oiled machine. Filling in food deserts. We have three community colleges where we either provide food boxes or an actual operating farmer's market. And what's affecting young people's mental and emotional health. Pressures of school, friendships from romantic relationships, pressures from family. New episodes of Adultish from YR Media drop every Thursday, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash Plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash Prudy Plus. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Jamila Lemieux, to answer your letters. So we have had two questions so far. Are you ready to take on another one? Let's do it. All right. This is titled Best Friend Forever. After a tumultuous couple of years in my young adult life, I am now 28 years old and have just one best friend in the entire world, in addition to my wife and dear son. Throughout all of my ups and downs, my best friend has been there compassionately and non-judgmentally, seeing me through the getting in and out of a very abusive and toxic relationship. All the time, my friend has been in a pretty awful relationship of her own. For 10 years, she was cheated on consecutively, and despite saying this is her one deal breaker in relationships, has always stayed and tried to minimize issues going forward by setting new rules. However, her longtime partner always had other drawbacks in the way of being emotionally manipulative, unavailable, and being 100% financially dependent on her. Recently, he admitted he cheated again, although it was only virtual. She's not interested in discovering the extent of it beyond this and ended the relationship. I have been extremely supportive and available during this time, and I am so proud of her decision to finally move on. However, I feel as though she is constantly backtracking, and I worry that she will return to him simply out of the fear of being alone. My worst fear is that A, she will go back to him, and B, that if I tell her my concerns directly, I will alienate her from being truthful or having our friendship continue. This has always been a very fine line for me, but I see this as my one moment of opportunity given my own experiences escaping an abusive relationship. On the one hand, I can keep our friendship intact and say nothing. Or on the other hand, I can stand my ground in the way outsiders often fail to in recognizing and addressing dangerous and toxic relationships. 
I also worry about her resistance not fully understanding what transpired, which may reveal his emotional or physical involvement with another woman and truly highlight his lack of desire for being with her beyond financial benefits. What should I do? I mean, can you imagine you break up with someone after going through absolute hell? You're shaken, you're kind of recovering, you're hoping to just have a girl's night out, just talk about reality TV or whatever at work or whatever it is. And your friend is like, listen, I'm worried. That situation you got out of it was really bad. Um, I don't think you understand how dangerous and toxic it was. I think you're going to go back. Oh, and by the way, he I'm pretty sure he was cheating on you. And um, I think he was only with you for the money. I mean, how is that helpful here? When you put it that way, it does sound like it's destined to go really, really badly. Do you think there's a way it can go well? Am I doing an ungenerous read of the letter here? I've been ungenerous to everyone today. so <laughs> I think, you know, this is a little different than the first letter in terms of like intervening with somebody else's relationship decisions. Mm-hmm. And because there is real toxicity here and, you know, some level of abuse. And with this person being a survivor of an abusive relationship, they are speaking as, you know, an expert of sorts. Mm -hmm. Um, And this person saw the, you know, this friend saw them through their own abusive relationship. So it's not like coming from nowhere, you know, like, who are you to comment on this? How do you, you know, you wouldn't understand. It's like, no, I would understand because I've been through something similar. Um, You know, I wouldn't do this on movie night. (laughs) I wouldn't do this over drinks, you know, but I would try and find a time, um, maybe one-on-one, maybe at the house, maybe do bring a bottle of wine, but you set the tone to like, hey, I really want to talk to you about something important. Um, I'm just deeply, you know, concerned for you. I know you were in this relationship for 10 years. And I would imagine if these people are close in age, a 10-year relationship for a 28-year-old started when they were really young, Mm -hmm. you know? So this is probably someone who doesn't have much other romantic experience. And so this is the only person that you've been with, you know, for most of your adult life. I can understand the friend's fear that they're going to slip back into, you know, this comfortable pattern of being with this person. Um, But I would, you know, I'd say I've just been thinking about you and I wanted to check in, you know, see how you're dealing with the breakup as opposed to it kind of coming off like I've got this prepared speech for you and I already know you're going back and so I'm Mm -hmm. here to tell you not to, but more like a check-in. You know, how are you feeling? How are, you know, are you finding peace with this? Are you thinking about seeing other people? Are you taking some time for yourself? Like, what's up with you? What's going on? And kind of like with the first letter, asking questions, Mm -hmm. you know, like, would you want to deal with X, Y, and Z again? Do you think that you could trust this person again, you know, and just kind of hopefully guiding them to a place where they feel, you know, you help them feel more confident in their decision to leave as opposed to saying, I think you're going to take them back. I think, you know, you're preparing to make the wrong decision. I like that. I like that twist on it so much. Um, And as you were talking, I was thinking, I wonder too, if the letter writer could just say, I guess just framing it more positively, because Mm -hmm. this person has made a healthy decision and they are in a better place right now. So I wonder if that conversation where the letter writer brings over a bottle of wine could be something like, you know, how are you and all the questions? Are you in a good place? And how can I support you in like staying in such a good place? Yeah. And if it seems like you're tempted to go back and backtrack, what would you like me to do as your friend? Mm-hmm. 
like, how can I step in if that does start to happen? I think that would be super helpful. Um, only because the friend has not asked for advice yet. Right. And it's easy for us to say as people who get paid to give advice, but I really think it's a good idea to hold off until people ask most of the time. Um, so with that question, you're sort of, you're prompting her to, um, to ask for advice in advance. So then two months down the road, if she's getting back together with the guy, you can say, okay, well, when I came over with that bottle of wine um, after the breakup, you did say that if you started to think about getting back with him, um, you wanted me to remind you of all the times he hurt you or take you on a weekend trip or whatever it may be. And then you sort of have that, you have that pre-approval to get a little bit more involved. And I would also add, let them know that you're proud of them. Mm. You know, I'm really proud of you. You know, I know it took a lot for you to walk away from that situation. It couldn't have been easy. And you're doing great. You mm-hmm. know, so like some positive reinforcement. Like you're doing really well. This is mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I would just do a lot of reminding her of how good it is to see her, you know, feeling happy. And like that meme that goes around, like how I sleep being single, knowing that nobody's cheating on me. Like mm-hmm. just doesn't it feel good? It's just so good to see you without like all these worries and all this angst and all this conflict in your life. And I just I love seeing you like this. You have a glow. Um And also just being a good friend too, I think is doing things that are less directly applicable to the situation and more just like making sure she has fun Mm -hmm. and making sure this part of her life is enjoyable and she feels good about herself without ever even mentioning the guy. This is Dear Prudence. We have to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show. I'm here with my guest, Jamila Lemieux, to answer your letters. Okay, our next question is titled, Confused. I recently accompanied my husband on a very unusual work trip that raised some weird feelings. We both travel a fair amount for our jobs and are used to the ways it can be weird, but this was a class of its own. 
His company is expanding into a new market, which includes a country famed for opulence and limited agency for women. I went along at his request to show that he was a family man. We agreed that I was using my vacation time to do him a big, weird favor to try and get the massive client and that it was a one-time event. I ended up working with a stylist in advance to understand the dress code and the different settings and plan my clothes. A lot of the settings involve being very covered up and others involve being a guest in various women-only spaces while my husband was in another room doing the actual negotiations. I know logically that I would hate to live that way, and that the women I met have fewer opportunities than me, and also are representative of a crazy tier of wealth. We're well off in the U.S., but definitely not anything like this. But I loved it. I felt taken care of. I felt almost relaxed. It was still business, so not that relaxed. I loved the way being completely covered up took away a lot of my body insecurities. I wasn't in charge of anything. I can't stop thinking about this now that I've slipped back into my regular life where I manage projects and people and our home and more, and I am carefully working to maintain my body weight. What do I do with this weird fixation? So I guess the question between the lines here is, did this experience teach me that I want to give it all up and move to a country where women are oppressed so I don't have to do anything? Um, No. I think you're reading too much into the way you felt and literally anyone would enjoy having no responsibilities, not worrying about their body, leaving their daily concerns behind. It is why people go to all-inclusive resorts and wear nothing but sunscreen and a flowy caftan and sit by the pool. Like that feels really good. The fact that you enjoyed a break from work and stress and getting ready every day, um, does not mean anything deeper and specifically does not mean that you should be like on the road to giving up your rights as a woman. (laughs) What do you think, Jamila? I agree. You know, um, under these specific circumstances, I can see how these restrictions may have felt like comfort and a break. You know, like there wasn't these expectations of you to be a boss. You didn't have to manage people and things you were taken care of. But you know that a life like that, ultimately, you wouldn't be doing the sort of things you're doing now if that was the sort of life that you wanted. And you also had the freedom of choosing this. This was something that you were trying on for a limited amount of time. You know, you were doing it as a favor to your husband. You knew that you were going to be able to return to a life where you're able to make decisions for yourself about what you wear and what you say and what you do. And, you know, I highly doubt that this feeling of escapism that it gave you means something significant in terms of what you want out of life going forward. Now, in terms of the clothing, there are people who enjoy dressing modestly. Mm -hmm. You know, if you found that wearing, I don't know if these were flowy garments or simply that you wore long sleeve shirts and long skirts, you know, but however you were dressed gave you a sense of comfort, you can bring some of that into your own Um, daily life. You know, you can wear loose fitting clothes, you can wear long dresses, you can dress more modestly if that makes you feel good, if that helps you with some of the insecurities and the obsession over your weight. Uh, I think there's, if there's anything that you can take away from the experience going forward, it could be, you know, an affinity for modest dress. Yeah, I would say listen to the voice inside you that's, um, 
rebelling against spending so much energy focusing on your body and how you look. Um, that's totally valid. I agree. And maybe you also want to not work so hard. Maybe you need like more downtime in your life. Maybe you need more of these all women spaces in your life. I think there are pieces of this um, that you could bring into your reality little by little that might really make you feel a lot happier. I don't think it represents anything deeper about like wanting to live in a different society or wanting to give up. And this is the key part, the ability to choose these things. Okay, this will be the last one for today. Do you have anything left to give? I do. I could do five more. This is really fun. If you're ever like off, can I be your substitute? I love Absolutely. these questions. These are great. Yes, because just like this woman, I want the occasional day off. So um, <laughs> yes, I will need someone to fill in. Anyway, the next letter is titled, It's Me or the Dog. It's me or the dog. My ex-husband David and I divorced over a decade ago. We had gotten married straight out of high school and became parents shortly after and were never well suited. The only reason we stayed married was that I didn't want our daughters to come from a broken home. Eventually, however, after five years, there were no more sticking plasters left. David and I now co-parent with mixed success. I have remarried while David has a long-term girlfriend. The problem is that recently David asked if he could take the girls for a week's trip to see his parents. My daughters were not enthusiastic about the idea until David suggested they bring their dog along. They could take PBJ and go for hikes or take him to the lake with him, just like David used to do with his childhood dog. My husband said no. He claimed he'd booked some sort of special obedience course for the dog, but later admitted that was a lie. Apparently, he doesn't trust David with the dog. I pointed out that he trusts him with our girls, and he said he didn't, but he didn't have a say in that. I admit that David has made mistakes, mostly when he was drinking, but we worked through them. I'm so conflicted about a lot of things now, that my husband can't trust David with his dog, but my daughters are fine, that he has such contempt for what I considered a significant part of my life, maintaining a relationship between my daughters and their dad, that he doesn't trust my judgment when I told him the dog would obviously be fine. Before this, we were discussing whether or not it would be a good idea to have another child, but now all that's on hold because of the dog. Plus, the girls don't want to go with their dad. Now they know their stepdad is on their side, and it's turned into a whole I'm the bad guy situation. I know it's ridiculous, but I just feel so disrespected. This is so complicated and tangled, but I think you're having all these negative feelings here, and you're putting them on David and the dog. And this isn't about David and the dog. This is about the fact that David's choice about the dog has sort of poked at the fact that you know your ex is not great to be around, maybe even not safe to be around, and that you're sending your children with him. It, I don't know what he's done when he's drunk, but whatever it is that was worth mentioning, um, I would encourage the letter writer to focus in on the question of, are my girls in a good place when they're with their dad, rather than how does my current husband feel about his dog um, in comparison to his stepchildren? I agree. You know, your husband has jurisdiction over the dog that he doesn't have over your girls. But, you know, if it were up to him, he wouldn't be allowing them to spend that time with their father. So that does raise, you know, I think that should give you some pause. Um, and you should really think about, like, is your ex-husband capable of taking care of the girls for a week? I think the fact that they don't want to go says a lot. 
you mm-hmm. know, that it was only compelling to them if their dog was going to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, this is their father. If they don't feel comfortable or interested in spending that sort of time with him, perhaps they shouldn't. I think um, your current husband is actually doing a phenomenal job of minding his own business as a stepfather. So I'm sure you get this with Karen feeding too. Mm-hmm. There's so many step parents who just try to overstep and insert themselves and it ends up causing these huge conflicts. And meanwhile, this guy is just like, I care about those girls, but they're not my business. I'm not going to push back on like what they do over this week or over the weekends. Like you said, the dog is his jurisdiction and he's only commenting on things that are in his jurisdiction. That's actually very admirable. I think so, too. You know, and it could be that his concerns are not so great that he would say something to you about it. Um it could also be that he's just simply respecting, you know, your authority as their mother to make decisions about them. But it does it. I don't know. On one hand, I feel like, OK, that's good. He's not overstepping his boundaries as a step parent. But if he thinks that the father is so, you know, I wonder what the concerns are. I wish we knew a little bit more about mm-hmm. what the challenges are. I mean, you mentioned drinking. So that does give us a hint that there could have been some pretty rough times. Right. You know, but I do wonder why your husband wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, saying to you, I have some concerns about David being with the girls or or gently asking you questions that we've suggested today. You know, do you mm-hmm. feel really good when David is with the girls? Do you think David is up to doing a whole week with the girls? Mm-hmm. Um, but because that's, you know, to me, I think that's what you should be thinking about. I think he didn't say anything to the letter writer because she's explosive and she's quick to say she's being disrespected. Mm-hmm. So in this letter, she's like, I know it's ridiculous, but I just feel so disrespected. I think that's why he initially made up a lie about the dog going to like a special dog camp or whatever, mm-hmm. because he knew that she wouldn't take it well. He right. knows that this is all like just a tinderbox and that if he said anything, she would like get explosive and not take it well. So that's why he tried to tiptoe around the issue. I just really, again, you mentioned alcohol. These are your kids. I just want to reemphasize, um, try to take the focus off of the dog situation. Um, what's the dog's name? BLT? PBJ? Um, it doesn't really matter <laughs> what the dog does, um, but really give some thought to what's best for your daughters. Okay, those are all the letters we have for this week. Um, as always, I really hope we've been helpful. Jamila, thank you so much for being here. I am pretty sure I'm going to be taking something from this episode, which is to always encourage people to ask questions instead of lecturing people. I will try to make sure to credit you when I do that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for having me. Go listen to Jamila on her Slate podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. It's where she and her co-hosts share triumphs and fails and offer advice on parenting kids from toddlers to teens. It comes out every Monday and Thursday. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. And you can join us for the Dear Prudy live chat on Mondays at noon Eastern. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we are looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their question for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks. Editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer. 
And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.